So, Michael, I've been reading Proust with my seniors, volume one, Swan's Way, and I came across a passage that I think will interest you very much. So, it occurs rather early in the book. It's just two sentences, not very long, given what Proust is capable of. Um, so it's when we're meeting the characters and getting to know them, okay? And we hear this about the main character, Swan. Even with respect to the most insignificant things in life, none of us constitutes a material whole. Even the very simple act that we call seeing a person we know is in part an intellectual one. We fill in the physical appearance of the individual we see with all the notions we have about him and of the total picture that we form for ourselves, these notions certainly occupy the greater part. So you were telling me just the other day that what I just read from Proust is something that Euclid can prove. Yeah. <laughs> that I want to see. <laughs> All right. So the Euclid in his optics, of course, is uh, writing a, a geometrical treatment of human vision. Not, uh, not color, okay. but just the size, shape, and clarity of the things that we see. Mm -hmm. And so the optics begins with a set of definitions about or presuppositions about the nature of our power of sight. And it begins with a, a claim that what we see occurs along straight lines or that the power of our vision occurs along straight lines that extend a great greatness into space all the way to the point, for instance, that we can see stars. Okay. So he's saying that about just the power of vision, not about light. Or not about light. And he's really uh, not saying, for instance, that light is the source of our, our sight. Okay. And the, probably the simplest way to think about that is light that strikes the back of our head doesn't make us see anything. Mm -hmm. But some power that extends in straight lines from our eyes. From and our I think eyes. a lot of readers of the optics, there haven't been a lot of readers of the optics recently, but a lot of readers of Euclid's optics understand what Euclid is saying is to say that some kind of power emanates outward from our eyes into the world. Uh, I don't think that's of material importance in, in terms of reading Euclid's optics and thinking about what he's showing us about sight. But mm -hmm. that is one way people understand okay. it. A few other things that he actually says in these definitions are, is uh, that the size of an object, is, at least the size that it appears to be for our sight, is dependent upon the angle that the extremities of the object make with our eye. So if you draw straight lines from our eye to the ends of any object we're looking at, that would be its front surface that's available to us because we can't see around yep. to the back, that that angle that it makes determines the size that things appear. Okay. So, you know, when somebody is far away, you can situate their head between the, your fingers and crush their head that's if right. you want or something yep. like that, at least in appearances. So that that's sort of the the beginning of the rules of sight is that sight operates along straight lines. What those straight lines touch, we see, and what they don't touch, we don't see. Okay. So the very first... I can accept that. Yeah. Okay. As, as a starting point. The very first proposition, then, the one that you've asked me to show that Euclid proves, 
is that we never see any object in its entirety all at once at, at the same time. He says hama in Greek. Okay. So if I considered an object to be just the side of it that's facing me, is what Euclid's talking about, this line BC is the object I'm looking at. That or, line, all right. And A is where my eye is. Then many lines of vision or of the power of my vision in straight lines come out from my eye or can be drawn out from my eye and they touch this object BC. Mm -hmm. And where they touch it, I see a part of the object. In this case, a point. A point, yes. Because these lines are straight and because they come from one point, my eye. And diverge. They diverge. Well, if they didn't diverge, they'd just see one point, yeah. right? So in order to see many points, those, the power of vision must diverge. But because it diverges, there are gaps or spaces in between the lines that define the power of vision. Okay. And anything that falls in those spaces, we don't see. So this is a picture of one moment in time of the power of our vision operating on one object and seeing parts of it and missing or not seeing most the parts of, in between. Missing most of it. it well, maybe. It, it, I mean, it looks it, like. It, yeah, right. It depends on how many lines yeah. of vision there are. But that's on. what I wanted to, that's in a way the obvious question, isn't it? Why not just draw more lines, indefinitely more lines? I think as many as you draw, right, they still diverge from one another. So as long as you, you maintain the thought that the power of vision operates along straight lines and that what you see comes into focus at a place, at one place, one point, your eye. Your eye. Mm -hmm. Then there'll be parts that are missed. Okay. Right. So one, at one moment in time, you never encounter the entirety of the thing you're looking at. Even a very small thing that's close. Sure. Okay. Actually, I think the next proofs that Euclid does in the optics indicate that if this if this body BC were to be closer, it would be touched by more lines or there would be fewer gaps in between the powers of vision. And we would see it more clearly, more clearly. but not in its entirety at okay. one time. Mm -hmm. Now, the one thing that seems really remarkable to me about that first proof is not the math itself, which I think is pretty straightforward once you it's very accept simple, you the know. definitions. It's, it's so simple. It's... Uh, and the implication seems so big yeah. that it's it's startling. Uh, well, and and I thought it's startling, surely, you know, just to say, when we begin from perception itself by itself, we don't get continuous holes. That's not our experience. Mm -hmm. that, it, that's not derived from just vision. But Euclid adds one line of text to the end of his first proposition, and it's not a mathematical comment. It's a comment about our opinions and the way things seem to us. And he says, despite this fact that we don't see something in its entirety all at once, he says, it seems to us that we do because our eyes flicker yeah. back and forth. And he's indicating some holding together of a series of moments, putting together okay. a number of these experiences that are missing things and giving ourselves the impression, the opinion, that we do see holes all at once and that, that the scene that's held together is one moment in time and that the 
object itself is given to us by our vision. I see. So the eye might have little mov movements in itself yeah. or the head, and this takes a certain amount of time. And there's, yeah. it sounds like this is almost like an integration operation where, you know, uh, here a certain distance BC is, uh, the points there on are, are integrated yeah. to give you a continuous line, just to use the language of calculus. Well, I think it, it might uh, approximate the, the thought of the calculus in some ways, this thought, except for the very next propositions, like I was saying before, are propositions about variable clarity. So even though there's maybe some uh, flickering of the eyes, which I think human, human beings who study these things have discovered this several times in history, including uh, Charles Darwin's father uh, studied this. Even though there's that flickering, and even though Euclid is saying we're, we're taking many snapshots from our vision and putting them together as if they were one thing, even that doesn't give us everything. Mm-hmm. So that the next propositions indicate, you know, not that an object that's closer to us is seen in its entirety over a period of time, mm. but that it's seen with more clarity than the object, the same object farther away. Mm -hmm. Not perfect clarity, but more clarity, which also means something is being thrown into the mix, which isn't just given to us by our eyes and then collected by that's our, what, our, our what soul. interests me. So with say with Proust. Yeah. You're talking about what it takes to know another human being yeah. or to make known a character in a book. Uh, it takes many pages, many interactions with many people as one follows him along. And, uh, and even then, you're, you feel that character is a mystery, finally. Um, so... Does that have some counterpart in Euclidean optics, what I just described, humanly? Well, I think the, the mystery might be, what do we have to add? Since no matter, well, I, 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 maybe I'd say this. If we wait too long, we take too long of a period, it won't seem like a single vision to us, right? So uh. staring and moving your head over and scanning something, that wouldn't seem like it was one thing, one experience. But if we just focus on those experiences that seem to us as if they're one, there's still something added in there that isn't just all the things that our powers of vision have touched. There's something that we're putting in to, that blurs mm -hmm. together with the things that we have in fact seen. Yeah. So Proust, in what I read, said we have intellectual notions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we're adding in, in, in this case, there are prejudices that the family has about the bourgeois mm -hmm. background of this main character. So they think of him in a certain kind of class. Right. He's that kind of person. So is that, does that get at what you mean, that we're adding to this line certain intellectual notions that make it a line, a straight line, rather than some other kind of mathematical object? Well, I, I, if I move away from the line slightly, it does seem to me the word prejudice is a pretty good word. There's, there's a judgment that's being made before any experience, before perception has given us anything. There's a judgment that's being made that seems to explain what we put in to complete the whole and give us the appearance or the opinion, I should say, 
that we have encountered a hole. And probably those okay. those things that we put in have to be somewhat class class specific, right? Yeah. yeah. So if I think I'm looking at a straight line, I put in some kind of simulacrum of straightness in between the actual parts that I've seen mm -hmm. to straighten it out for the whole. If I thought I was seeing something else, I'd put in things that belong to its kind. But those yeah. things that are put in are not as vivid, I think, at least in vision. So that, that explains why the things that are farther away are still blurrier for us or less clear. And where do those things come from yeah. that we're putting in or filling in the gaps, as it were, literally here, filling in gaps? Filling in gaps, yeah. Uh, where, where does it come from? Do we make it up? Uh, is it a habit? Is it something, to go back to the word prejudice, yeah. pre-existing that we simply apply that's common to all minds? Uh, yeah, I would think that there probably are options, if I could put it that way, that we're not not simply predetermined by uh, you know, structures that are born into us. I think in the context you, you began us in Swan's way, it doesn't seem to me that those notions of class are inborn. Mm -hmm. And since they wouldn't be applied to every unfamiliar human being, they aren't necessitated by the experience, but mm -hmm. they're imposed upon it. I would think that's also true even of uh, some of our geometric approaches. Depending upon what we already have come to think about objects, how we're vaguely familiar with them, what we expect from them, we put into them. Mm. So, but that's that sounds pretty radical. That well, is, yeah, so there's a late, that, I just mentioned a late proof in Euclid's optics. Uh, early on, Euclid shows that if you look at an object and it's um, moving toward you, if it, well, if you look at the same object at two different distances, which is a way in which you could model movement, the one that same object seen closer will occupy a larger angle of your vision, and so it will look bigger to you. Yep. So he proves that and basically just draws that same line BC closer and then connects the endpoints to show yep. that it occupies a larger, larger angle. A larger angle at A. Yep. Okay, so that's what it means geometrically for something to look bigger to us. Late in the book, Euclid has a small proof where the diagram would be just exactly the same, but he says if there's an object that's growing, it's actually changing size and getting larger, we will think it's coming at us. That is, we will think it's coming at us. And why does he say something like that? That's not math. The math is indifferent. The same appearance occurs whether there's something coming at us and seeming to get bigger that way by occupying larger angles of our vision, as would appear if something were not, uh, not approaching us at all, but just getting bigger right. and occupying larger mm -hmm. angles in our vision. So he says we, th we will think it's coming at us because it matters to us. Uh, if something's coming at us. If it's big enough and coming at me, it yeah. might eat me. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Or, so, or even the simplest thing. That baseball is coming at me. Right? Yeah. And it's going to hit me. So what you just described about things getting bigger, either because they're coming at us or they're simply increasing in size while remaining at rest, interests me a lot because it sort of involves character in uh, 
in seeing things, even just things as mathematical objects. It involves, say, courage and cowardice. Or, yes. Or yeah. you know things like that, virtues and vices. But I thought those things ought not to enter into doing Euclidean optics or Euclidean geometry, or uh, um, you know objective science, physics. But in a way, you're, you're saying it's there. Well, it's certainly there in Euclid's text. Uh, I would probably begin by suggesting some of these kinds of comments that Euclid makes are extra mathematical, that they're outside the realm of what's mathematically necessary or mathematically relevant. The, mm -hmm. In other words, the object that's growing has the same logos for vision that the object that's coming at us has. It's increasing in size, occupying a bigger angle. Mm -hmm. Now, in I think every proof in Euclid's optics, there's basically two, uh, two accounts. There's the account of how things appear to our vision. And then there's the account of where they are in linear ge geometrical relationships to one another, where our eye is, how far away the object is, what its size is. And those, those two accounts are two logoi are separate from one another. And there's even a proof in the middle of Euclid's optics to indicate that you know, they never quite exactly have a, a, the same proportions. So he's well, always telling two stories, yeah. how things look and then how they are. And then he seems to throw in a third story from time to time, what we think about them, how our mind relates to these situations. Or how to reconcile sure. the you know, the fact that they don't simply overlap, right. the two logoi. Yeah, this question always often comes up when we're doing uh, freshman math and freshmen are working through Euclid's geometry. What does this have to do with the so-called real world? You know, is this geometry that we're doing real? Is it out there in nature? Uh, you know, so there's a, seem to be a really funny or interesting set of uh, understandings the way Euclid presents the optics. For instance, objects really have size that belongs to them, and they really are a certain place and at a certain time. Uh, and their, their dimensions could be explained or, or described the way Euclid describes the boundaries of objects mm -hmm. in, in the elements. That is, they have places where they end and places where they, other things start. All the, that I think Euclid treats as the, as the world outside of us. Not only that, but those boundaries and those objects are whole and they are continuous. And stable. And stable. He treats them as stable. Mm -hmm. Our vision doesn't show that. Okay. Our vision doesn't show us all of them at once, not even the side that's facing us. And it doesn't, it's not unchanging because if our eye moves or the object moves and changes its relationship, its size and even its shape and certain and its clarity, how clearly we see it, all those things change. So that's what vision initially gives us. Yeah. Euclid presents it as if we should think that's explained by a stable, consistent, continuous, and world full of holes. So Euclid he just he he assumes or prejudges there is this whole, real stable whole that is behind the appearances, geometry gives us, you know, laws about it. Yeah. 
I think that is the uh, well, set of his assumptions, yeah. So if this isn't too preposterous, why should one believe the geometry rather than the eye, what, one, what one's eyes give you? I'm not sure that I have a completely good answer to that question. Except, I mean, I can tell you, I think, what is the difference between the two. Okay. Um, well, I think we've already mentioned in this certain way. The world is stable. If we just paid attention to what vision gives us, just vision by itself, the sizes of things change all the time on the basis of our situation to them. Of course. Right? We, mm -hmm. we tend to think as we're approaching something and it gets bigger in our vision that it's not growing. Right? Mm -hmm. But we, how do we test that? We go, we go up to it maybe and we measure it, we touch it to see if it is where we see it as being, things mm -hmm. like that. But that's no test if the world could have been changing. Mm -hmm. That is, by the time I get up to somebody, maybe they've grown. And when I leave them, they shrink. And all these things, when I move, they seem to move. Mm -hmm. Aspects of relative motion. Why couldn't that be the, the sort of dynamic and ever-changing way in which the world really is? And we suppose that on, you know, underneath that, there is something stable and, con and consistent. Mm -hmm. So this would get at that third story that yeah. you were saying you could tell us. That is, what do we think about you know, the choice or the discrepancy between the two logoi geometry and perception? And as we think about it, maybe we would find ourselves more amenable to going with the eye under certain scenarios. Let me give you one, mm -hmm. another literary one that comes to mind. It's from Hamlet. Okay, so that's when the ghost returns to visit Hamlet while he's talking with his mother, Gertrude. And Hamlet sees the ghost. Gertrude doesn't. Yeah. And Hamlet says, don't you see my father dressed in his habit as he lived? And she says, uh, I see nothing there. And he says, nothing at all? And she says, this is the interesting part, nothing at all and all that is I see. So she's not only not seeing the ghost mm -hmm. for whatever interesting reason, but she's operating under this assumption that her eyes give her the world, give her what is there. And Hamlet knows differently. That is, so if one goes with one's eyes, I mean, it looks like it can go both ways. You can see ghosts. Mm -hmm. Or like Gert, like Hamlet, or you like Gertrude could say, there aren't any because I don't see them. I never have. You know, but that makes a, that makes all the difference in that in the world of that play. Well, I, I imagine a, how would I say a more modest Gertrude, and I don't mean that in any punning way. Uh, who wouldn't simply trust her own vision? Who would accept, for instance, that maybe the logic of ghosts means they appear to some and not to others, or maybe they're or that Hamlet sees maybe rightly. they're in here, right? You know, they're they're they occupy a certain gap, yeah, in one's I don't know one's perception, one's character, one's intellect. Well, yeah. So there's two things. I mean, there's the gap that is attends each of our perceivings, so that each of us humbly, I think, should recognize our 
is missing something of what is there which could be seen. Mm -hmm. So there's a world, world that could be visible and is not visible to anyone in its entirety. So each of us are missing some of that. And we could be humble about what we're missing. And if someone else tells, okay. tells us they see something there that we don't, we could possibly consider. Maybe within the gaps, they're seeing something that is there to be seen. The other thing I think is the, the filler, what we add in, what we put in that's not gotten by, by vision at all, but from our okay. starting points, we could call them our prejudices, I think. Yeah. So you mentioned a word a couple of times that, that interests me. It goes back in a way to character, humility. Yeah. That, that this proof should make us more humble about who we are as knowers, learners. You know, what, are, what are the implications of that? It might be several, but you know, if you think just narrowly with regard to our relationship to math to begin with, right? There's a lot of, I think, tendency, especially amongst modern students, to think that math is about things that human beings made up. And therefore, in a way, it's subject to our whim. Mm -hmm. We are masters of math because we made it and it does what we say it does and nothing more. This suggests that math and in some way exceeds us and we fail at grasping it entirely. We don't get to the holes that are there. You mean, Instead, we substitute holes of our own making. You mean the mathematical beings, yeah. if, if we can call them that. We yeah. don't, they're there and we don't get them. Yeah, so one, one of the ways in which I think a lot of people describe the mathematical beings is that they are abstracted from our experiences, meaning they are some kind of dimmed down, cut away, version of what we experience. We never experience things with clean lines, right. for instance, although I suspect we actually do experience things with actual boundaries. But still, that is, the, there's a sense in which the math is cleaner, purer, simpler than what we experience. And that leads to the thought that we have abstracted it away mm -hmm. from our experience. And by experience, I think that means our sensation. This suggests our sensation falls short of the thing it's sensing which is ascribed by Euclid as having those, one could say, perfect mathematical properties, continuity, fullness, wholeness. We don't get that from our perceptions. Instead, we make up something that seems to us to be whole. Mm -hmm. And in the way we make it up, with its blurriness especially, we throw in things that aren't really there, that come from us, and maybe come from very... Uh, suspect sources. So we aren't masters of this math. We are falling short of it continually and we're um, adulterating it with the things that we throw in. Okay, so you just used another word yeah. that I think goes maybe goes with humility. Um, this proof might you know, offer the lesson that, that we uh, are just naturally going to experience the world in a blurry way. We are, we're blurred. Yeah. And we should live, the, and the, the effort to see things clearly, you know, which you know, Descartes makes such a big part of his program, uh, that's prideful and it involves, well, or maybe it's just creative. So mm -hmm. it's an invitation to create uh, and to make up for the deficiency, great clarity. Sure. But what, is, is it an option to say, 
I want to live my natural blurry life. I mean, there's something to be said. Is there something to be said for blurriness? I, I think it sounds right to me that there's something to be said for blurriness because um, it's, how do I say it? It's in measure with the way sensation gives us the world. But of course, we're not just sensing beings, as you yeah. said. The, I think the other option is not, I think, that we would clean up our blurriness into perfect clarity. That just doesn't seem to be an option, uh, at least in the terms of this, this sort of proof. But the option is that we could possibly find clarity in a different aspect of our being than in our sensation. And what would that be? You mean intellect? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it would have to be intellect that is, you know, constituting the clarity or discovering clarity in some realm that isn't composed of our perceptions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could one also say, I was thinking about this a moment ago, that there's an invitation here to become more than we ever thought possible creators. Mm -hmm. That is, if, if even in, in uh, giving ourselves a line we're doing something creative that we may not understand or be aware of, then, then that opens the door towards a way of thinking about ourselves and a way of experiencing life that is quite um, exciting. You know, that well, yeah, I think uh, there's a variety of things that follow along the lines I think you're suggesting. One, a, pos a possibility of being active without apology is available. If we say there is no circumstance in which we we experience the world, in which we aren't active composers in some measure, mm -hmm. then it seems to me we don't have to apologize or um, denigrate our own efforts when we are in fact active constructors of, of the, the experience. That might also invite us to think, how could we add to the composition of our own experience in such a way as to make it better. It, it depends upon what the sources are mm -hmm. of what, what we're adding in. Mm -hmm. And if those sources are changeable, then we could very well pursue lines of thought that indicate, let's, let's find better things to add in. Let's make a, genuinely make a better world because we have no option to be anything other than world makers. Mm -hmm. And our only options really turn out to be whether we've become relatively inactive, unconscious makers of bad worlds, or whether we, we try to seize upon that power itself and steer it in directions okay. that rather gratify us and, and, and satisfy us better. Okay, so two things occur to me there. Yeah. And if we go back to our line, so we've got endpoints, B and C, we've got a limit, therefore. Yeah, our eye gives us that much at least. Yeah. So yeah. does that mean that if we're going to really take to heart this invitation to remake the world, that there are limits, there are endpoints given to us in our in our very perception? Yeah. Uh, so I mean, we could say that the power of our vision gives us certain limits in terms of perceiving things. And the objects themselves, the, the things that are out there that they're capable of being seen, impose limits. But within those limits, there's quite a lot of possibility for 
a difference in quality in the quality of our own cont creative contributions. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. It depends a little bit on on what and how we fill things in as to whether or not we could extend something beyond the endpoints. Mm -hmm. But one can sense already how this becomes, you know, a moral question. Well, very much so. But, you know, there was another moral question involved in, I think, in the way things appear to us that we touched on a little earlier, but I just call attention to it right now. Is there a, a moral stance in preferring a stable world, a consistent world, to one that's very, very changeable? Mm -hmm. right? Is there a, a moral predilection to, to prefer being and rest and lack of change over change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Preferring Euclid's stationary geometry. Yeah. So beautiful, so intact to something that's in motion. Well, the, the geometry of Euclid's of, of, optic. of, of the optics, this right? Geometry, yeah. So the underlying geometry, which maybe explains what we see, uh, is stable, consistent, unmoving, unchanging things for the most part. Sometimes they grow. Uh, and the, what we see is a whole series of changes depending upon the different relationships of our eye to the objects. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to stay, ask ourselves, what is the baseline starting point upon which we can create the worlds that we prefer or inhabit the worlds that we prefer? Vision gives us dynamic changes that we could very well live with. We could say, yeah. um, when you're far away, you're small, right? And when I get closer to you, you're big. And we could live in that world where we, there isn't this notion that each of us has an absolute measure. Yeah, that has implications for equality. I, I think, uh, you know. And politics quite and very, everything. You know, all of our spatial temporal metaphors that we apply to human moral relations yeah. would assume less fixity. Mm-hmm. And would also, I think, be understood to be dependent upon context much more clearly. Well, here's another implication that occurs to me um, about this discovery or proof that we don't get things whole in vision. Um, what if, if we were to go with that, say, as readers of books, why read the whole? Why not read the parts that are useful to us and not worry about the rest. Why do we need to get the whole person, say, in our relationships with people? There's something about this person that I want to know and make use of. The rest does not concern me. I mean, approaching, approaching things that way, uh, that is embracing the discreteness of life rather than trying to get at wholeness all the time. I mean, what do you see when you think about it that way? As, well, in a certain way, I see an admirable clarity, I would have put it. Uh, a person who wants to live life centered around the things that matter to them and mm -hmm. not to waste their life and their time dealing with things that have no use or meaning to them. On the other hand, one wonders how they come to know what else is on the page that they're ignoring. That they're ignoring, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. How would they? So know? in a, I mean, in a loose way, I guess I understand this sort of thing, that one 
reads every word on the page, but maybe only focuses attention and interest on a few words on the page. That would suggest that you saw everything, but you mm -hmm. uh, you focused only on moments of particular interest or importance. And, and that seems to me uh, maybe reliable. On the other hand, if you wanted to be really creative, why be why let authors impose themselves sure. on you? Yeah. On the other, you know, now it seems to me if you make any use of any other author, you you maybe understand their effect on you to be inspirational rather than mm -hmm. communication or something like this. You're not taking the message they're sending. You're taking something as that they've offered as a occasion and a provocation for some working of your own. Yeah. And I, I really want to say, what is to criticize that? If the the working, the making that you make of your own is fulfilling and if it's a good thing. I often think when I read Martin Heidegger, for instance, and he, he writes about some other author, he's not getting it right. Yeah. He's not being faithful to the author he writes about. But I've seen moments in Heidegger where he basically, it seems to me, to admit that or even to admit that it's not possible to get the other author right, to see them as they saw themselves. Mm -hmm. And then he defends his own action as saying, well, isn't what I wrote better? Mm -hmm. That is, <laughs> what are you complaining about? You're saying I didn't give you a hamburger. I gave you a steak. That's not what you want, asked for. And he wants to say, but it's better meal. <laughs> and it's, yeah. and I guess what would be the yeah. complaint if you, uh, inhabited a better series of thinking, a better vision, a better expression of human creativity. What would be the complaint that it's not faithful to the original? Yeah. Well, the example you give, hamburger and steak, suggests the criteria of better has something to do with health or liveliness or pleasure or. Yeah. Right, right. Well, yeah, I, I, I think why one thinks um, a steak dinner is better than a hamburger might quite, quite vary depending yeah. upon what, 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 how you're defining but I think, the I mean, improvement. The, you know, there's something I wanted to get at with that, with that question. So, because yeah. I'm intrigued by, you know, this possibility of approaching life in its discreteness, you know, choosing and leaving things out, even the reading of a book. I just am not so concerned with getting it all and getting it right. Because for one thing, going back to the limits, I'm mortal. I don't have the time. Sure. You know, I've got to choose what to read, how much to read. And, uh, but, but that does seem to imply I've got some notion again, notion of what's important to me and what it's for, you know, is it for health? Is it for, uh, inspiration? Is it for, I just want, to maximize beautiful moments, mm. or I want something that will make me feel in the moment a kind of eclipse of, of, you know, other things. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, this this other I think lurking possibility that you you want to understand the world, right? And you understand you you think there's something there, and I wish to see it and think it as it is. Mm -hmm. right? And that's where, you know, an argument against someone like, like Heidegger might, might come forward and say, well, you're really not seeing that. Uh, and if you only pick out certain moments, you're distorting to some extent. And that means you're failing to understand. 
So what's the attraction of seeing it, getting it as it is, rather than, you know, as I, or getting pieces of it and maybe filling in some gaps as I will, because I'm a creator. Right. Well, I mean, it stands and stands and falls on the sense in which one thinks uh, seeing what is has some kind of absolute value mm -hmm. right? regardless of of its instrumental use in to or subjection to other purposes one might have in one's life but i i, I guess i i think of well why not say seeing it as it is yeah as long as that as it is 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 a stable as it is then the gain is some participation in immortality um and that's what everyone wants Right, right. No, I, I think that would follow if the things as they are are eternal. Yeah, stable. Right. Well, but there's, there might be things that are, um, I want to say, relatively stable that aren't always. That are but, not eternal. Yeah. You know, for instance, I think Aristotle tends to characterize na nature as what it, that which is always or for the most part. Okay. And I actually yeah. think in the analysis of these things, he finds few things that are always, if any. But then what he's calling nature is for the most part, meaning we might even in all our understanding of the world inhabit a moment that's an exception and maybe fire won't burn the same way in Persia 10,000 years from now or mm -hmm. 100,000 years from now, or there'll be no Persia. Mm -hmm. uh, so that sort of thing just presupposes, I think, if it's going to be participation in the in, in immortality of sorts, it's going to be so because the objects are eternal. Mm -hmm. Now, but I could also see this going um, in a in a speaking of health, in another direction. I mean, what what implications does this proof have that we don't get things whole, mm -hmm. um, and we have to fill in? Um, for the question of, say, sanity versus madness. People think Hamlet's mad yeah. because, you know, he sees ghosts and he act, he's trying to act on that vision and uh, it makes him behave very strangely. Um, well, so what, I think within the sort of option, I think, that you mentioned regarding Hamlet, that maybe we could understand Hamlet as just someone who sees some of the gaps that other people miss. Mm -hmm. That certainly wouldn't constitute a, a mental defect if the, if insanity is a defective condition mm -hmm. and it wouldn't constitute, you know, one of the ways in which people often speak about insanity. It wouldn't mean seeing things that aren't there, mm -hmm. but the filling in part seems to be some kind of, seeing things that aren't there for our power of vision or aren't being revealed by our power of vision. So there, the, the filling in is, you know, how to say it, it's a symptom of your, uh, the beans prior apparatus, whatever they have to fill in with. Mm -hmm. And th that really might testify to something like their character. And uh, there's, if you are given a series of hints about something, the conclusions that you draw from those hints depend on who you are to a great extent. You, I mean, if you looked at someone putting together a bunch of clues that are not themselves whole, 
the things that they fill in to link one to the other reveal to you the way they think and the way they approach the world and the assumptions that they make. Mm -hmm. So you can see this very often in, in uh, people's interpretations of works that aren't telling you everything. Yeah. Is what do they fill in? And that's from them. It's not from anywhere else. Now, how, how they got those things is probably not entirely all their own making or their own fault. But still, it tells you a lot about who they are, at least at the moment they make those interpretations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking also of madness in terms of um, not just, you know, filling things in in a way other people don't, but, uh, you know, seeing the same thing everywhere. Ah, uh -huh. you know, an obsession, obsessional quality. Well, um, I think uh, in some way the filling in would tend to have this. This is almost what, if somebody has a relatively stable character, yeah. they tend to complete the world in relatively stable ways or yeah. repeat. I think Nietzsche defines character as having a typical experience, as experiencing the world the same way again and again, because there's something integrated and stable about anybody who we would say have character. This is under the assumption that yeah. some of us don't have character, if I could put it that way. Yeah. But that sounds like take take the extreme, take to the extreme wanting the world mm -hmm. to be stable and self-same. Yeah. That's madness. The same thing well, everywhere, I, always. I think it would look that way, uh, possibly if you encountered Zeno or Parmenides and those people who wanted to say nothing moves. Nothing changes. Mm -hmm. All is one. All is one. You know, so they have to talk with you about all the particulars in the world, but at the same time tell you that there aren't any such things and um, that every place they are looks the same to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Kind of madness of give me the whole and make it stable. What Does this have implications, though, for... Um, okay, so vision proves to be incomplete. Mm -hmm. Why not fall back on other senses? Can we correct vision that way without, you know, having to fill it in with intellectual notions that might be prejudices and have all sorts of other implications? There might be limited ways. I mean, if you think about the ways in which we would try to correct uh, the appearances vision gives us with our senses, you know, uh, I won't use a Euclidean Example, I'll use one that occurs in Rousseau. So you look at a, a stick that is part in, the, part in the air open and part in the water, and it seems to bend. Mm -hmm. You reach in your hand and you find that it doesn't bend. You feel along it to find that it doesn't bend. That has limited applications, right? We can't do those sorts of things with the stars or anything that's particularly far away. We can't do that with anything that's too big for our hands. Mm -hmm. um, and very often, uh, maybe I just make a... Joking, we can't do that with anything that's too far away in space-time. That is uh, something that's far farther away in space-time than light can travel between the distance where our hand is right now and where that object is, we can't touch, ever. Mm -hmm. No causal relationships between those sorts of things. So the, so the senses are not going to be self-correcting sufficiently to, well, to, so give they, us, to give us holes. Right, they don't all have the same issues that vision has, right? It, yeah. In the Euclidean presentation, vision has this limitation because it operates on straight lines. Yeah. Um, maybe touch doesn't, right? Yeah. Um, exactly. But it has other limitations, mm -hmm. um, like contact. 
That's a very severe limitation, I would say. And that imposes temporal limitations. Yeah. If you wanted to correct a vision at one point in time with a touch that you're going to make later, you really have to assume that nothing's changed in between. Right? And I don't think, see how any other sense would fully justify the assumption. So going back to the beginning in a way, um, Euclid writes the elements, his book of geometry, and he writes the optics. And those two logoi don't, don't overlap. There's some kind of you know, incommensurability problem because mm -hmm. the world that we see is not the world of the elements of geometry. That seems like a problem. Yeah. Uh, so how does one solve the problem? What are the options? Well, I think there are probably lots of options, many of which don't really solve the problem, if I could put it that way. Well, which but one do you, do you rank first? I, I guess I want to say that though there are two logoi, they have a kind of contact that Euclid establishes in, in the optics. So one could be very despondent, I think, to think that the world as I see it and the, in, from sensation and the world that I, as I constructed in my opinions, neither of these worlds correspond to what is, is what is uh -huh. out there outside of us. That could lead to great despondency and, and even a, a, a pervasive sense that um, sort of the objects of my own lived experience aren't real things. Mm -hmm. And that would be corrosive. I mean, for instance, to think that your mother is not real, mm -hmm. which I always use as an object if I'm trying to make an example, because it's an object we care about. Yeah. And it matters to us whether mother is real or not. Yeah. So, there's we a, could think this, but, yeah. but there's a pathway in the, in the optics, I think, between the two logoi. Euclid is showing how a certain situation that corresponds to the relations in linear distances and orientations of objects that are capable of being seen in the world can be understood as the cause of the precise appearances that we have, maybe not of the, the filler, but of the size, of the, of the degree of clarity, of the location in our visual field, all those things. And even things like that anticipate Einstein, like relative motion, mm -hmm. all those things can be understood to be the product of a stable world of geometrically perfect, continuous whole objects out there in space. The bridge to that world, which is not what we see or what is formed in our opinions exactly, is to engage in sort of backward reasoning. Mm. If I see this, what could the situation of the world out there be that would so cause that vision? One searches for causes yeah. that make sense of the appearances, sort of that old yeah. astronomical notion, save yeah. the appearances with, in that case, circular geometry. But you're proposing that as really a, a kind of philosophy of life or, or maybe our default position that we are always looking for such causes to, can, to fill in the, the gaps. And, well, it makes sense, but it yeah. also seems to me one could in really entertain, I think, the thought that we don't know 
what the, the underlying causes might be. In fact, there could be a variety of them. I, I think that's well illustrated in the proof we talked about earlier. Yeah. A, a, an object that's changing its distance with respect to you appears yeah. to be getting bigger or, and in your eye and an object that's changing its size but not, not approaching you also yeah. appears to be getting bigger. Either one could be the underlying experience. Yeah. We could be going around the sun or the sun could be going around us and it gives us the same appearances. So recognizing that reasoning backward from our, our standpoint requires us to be, I think, uh, cautious and uh, provisional yeah. and open to new, new possibilities. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of cause as playing a role mm -hmm. in, in this, humanly speaking, because it makes me think of plot. That is, a line is a plot. Yeah. You know, in, in literature, one speaks of plot lines. Right. You know, that's yeah. you know, where Aristotle a beginning, causing a middle, causing an end, and that's one one causal line. So our lives have plots, but maybe they don't. <laughs> maybe it's all a bunch of discrete, discrete moments that are not connected. I mean, that would be a, a rather frightening thought. Well, I think it might be, but it might also, I, I see some liberation in there too. I mean, if we're not held to the standard of okay. connected uh, yeah. con uh, continuity and pristine and, sort of know, clarity and connection. Then you can, you know, if you're in a tragedy, you can get out. Yes. As Oedipus tries to do, <laughs> though he doesn't succeed. You know, it, yeah. something happens in Oedipus at Colonus that the audience doesn't see. That's right. And it's a secret kept by, you know, the princes oh, of Athens. Oh, that's very nice. Right? Yeah, so it's, it's hidden. You yeah. know? So in those gaps are possibilities of hidden triumph, very as in the case of Oedipus at yeah. Colonus, where he's elevated to a kind of divine or semi-divine status. That's, that's very nice. Yeah, so one can go up or down with this or around many different ways. So it, it does seem to me it, it, it shows how much the we take this as our starting point, how much it affords us a revelation about how our path in life depends so much on our, our own attitude. And you know what one person regards as a disaster, another person can regard as an opportunity. Continuing the Conversation is a 20-episode web and podcast series produced by the St. John's College Communications Office in partnership with 12FPS and Awarehouse Productions. To continue the conversation with St. John's College, which offers a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, in-person and online master's degrees in liberal arts and Eastern classics, as well as summer academy for high school students and summer classics for lifelong learners, go to sjc.edu.